Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and I'm so glad that you can join me today. We are on part five of our series, working through the book of 1 Corinthians. This week, we are on chapter five. That worked out nicely, chapter five on week five. And I'd just like to say up front, this is a hard passage. I personally am still wrestling with these words, and I'm sure that you will too. But part of our goal in reading out every verse of this book is that we don't get to just skip over the hard parts. Even if we don't preach a full message on it, we still want to at least read through it. And I do also want to preface by saying that there is no target here. This passage is about church discipline, but we are not engaging with the passage because we need to do some church discipline. We're engaging with the Bible on its own terms as we work through this letter, and this just happens to be our next topic. So I really wanted to get that out in front that this isn't some, you know, targeted attack on somebody or some topic. Before we start reading, let's take a moment to remember the context for this chapter. Corinth is an important trade city in Greece, with traffic flowing east and west between the wealthy eastern half of the Roman Empire and the important administrative centers in Italy, not least of which is Rome herself. As such, Corinth was full of all the activities that we would associate with a city of sin. It was stuffed to the gills with temples to idols, lots of pagan festival feasting, temple prostitution, regular prostitution, take your pick. If you can think of your sin, it's probably there. The letter opens with Paul talking about divisions in the church, that the Corinthians seemed to be splitting into factions based on their favorite preachers, Though we also saw that those preachers may be more like figureheads for racial and ethnic divisions. We ended last week reading Paul's encouragement towards spiritual maturity and his warning against the consequences of spiritual immaturity. So, let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-13, to which is actually the whole chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. 
What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. There is so much to unpack in this chapter, but let's pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to gather together around a screen or uh, you know, in a, in a living room together, maybe. We, we are grateful that we can still come, gather around your word, gather together to worship you as your people, even as we can't be together. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open to you. We pray that your spirit would illuminate your word to us, that we would grow closer to you, that we would gain a greater understanding of the way that you would have us live, and that we could be your people. In your name we pray. Amen. So, what is going on in this passage? Well, there are a few things going on. First, Paul is responding to a situation that has come up. In this case, there is a man who is apparently sleeping with his stepmother. Secondly, Paul is responding to the church's response to the situation. And third, Paul is giving a command as to how the situation should be handled. Ultimately, Paul is talking about church discipline. I believe this is a hugely important topic, not only because the Bible talks about it, but because I have seen and lived the consequences of doing church discipline badly. Have you? Have you met someone who will never darken the door of a church because of how badly they were treated when they fell short? I knew a man who, when he was a young teenager, maybe like 12 even, smoked some marijuana once. His parents dragged him to the local church, of which they were not members, and of which he was not an attender, and that local church tore him up and down, excoriated him, humiliated him, all over a simple mistake that was made once. Today, 50 years later, that man won't even consider the teachings of Jesus. And what's more, when church discipline goes badly, it hurts so much more than just the person who is the subject of the discipline. When churches hurt people, there's always greater consequences than we expect. Family and friends of the disciplined person are also liable to depart from the community. Some of those people may stick close to God, but others may wander as they look for a place to belong. Some walk away. So we have to be extremely careful and intentional when engaging with church discipline. But if doing church discipline is so dangerous, then we might be tempted to just say, let's not do it. And knowing examples of people who've been hurt by the church and won't come back, it's so tempting to say that it's a practice that we should just ignore. But on the flip side, embracing sin hasn't worked out for the church either. Look, look at the broader church in our culture. When the church has accepted the culture's thoughts on doctrine, on the teachings of the church, has that helped the church or ultimately hurt it? Are the churches that are growing and thriving today the ones that reject biblical teaching on topics like sex and marriage? Or are the churches who have kept those teachings? Or churches who have rejected the inerrancy of the Bible? What, which of those groups do we want to be part of? You would never hear a doctor say, well, it's just a little bit of cancer, so no big deal, right? Sin is a corrupting force. 
Paul compares it to leaven. Look, here's a better example. Let's not get into politics, but we've just had this big trucker protest in Ottawa, right? You may be for it, you may be against it. One of the things that we saw brought up over and over is that there were some bad actors who were flying some evil flags and defacing some beloved memorials. Which conclusions you draw from that is up to you. I'm not trying to talk politics. But we all saw how those few wrong acts corrupted the whole rest of the enterprise, or at least the perception of the enterprise, right? Like, we should all be able to agree on that, no matter the politics. If we want to be a healthy church that honors God and glorifies him, then we can't allow sin to fester either. So, how do we make sure that we do church discipline well? This is a command in the Bible. This is important. We can't just walk away from it. But we also acknowledge that there are terrible consequences to handling it poorly. So, we need to do the work of making sure we do this practice well. First, let's make sure that we understand the correct context for taking action. I think the key here is found in verse 11 where Paul writes, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. So, really important note. Anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. This is about Christians. This is not about people out in the world. This isn't about your neighbor. This is about people who claim to be following Christ who say they want to live their lives his way, and it's about holding those people to the standard that they themselves have pledged. This is what was wrong with the example that I shared about the man who smoked a joint when he was 12. He wasn't a brother. He made no claim to be living God's way. So on what grounds do we get to hold him to this standard? God is the judge of the world. He is the one who will hold them accountable. But that's not our role, as Paul says in verse 12 and 13. So another piece to note about this passage is the difference between sin as a lapse and sin as an identity. To use an easy example, surely we can all recognize that there is a difference between somebody who got drunk and somebody who is a drunk, right? It's the difference between fighting against sin, even falling down sometimes, but still getting up laying down or versus laying down and accepting and saying this is just who I am or worse proclaiming that God told you that it was fine maybe a good word to use would be unrepentant it's not just that the person has sinned it's that they don't even want to fight it that's what's been happening in this passage the verb tenses suggest an ongoing act that this man hasn't just had his father's wife, but he continues to have his father's wife. In the same way, we need to be careful that we're applying church discipline not to lapses, since church discipline is such a serious and difficult matter, but rather to serious and difficult situations that require that greater response. I also want to point out that this doesn't appear to be a quick process. It's not an immediate leap to excommunication. Now, Paul in this passage is speaking to a pretty dire situation that has been left for a while, so he needs to cut to the chase, as it were. Jesus, on the other hand, gives a more full picture of that process, and he gives it to us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, where we read, 
If your brother or sister sins, go, point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's at least three full conversations. And I'd suggest there might be multiple conversations at each of those levels. So by the time you get to the point of putting a person out of the fellowship, they've been given weeks, if not months, to change their mind. So to recap, the context for church discipline is for someone who is a committed member of the community. It is someone who is unrepentant in their sin and treats it more like an identity than a lapse. And it is a process that happens in community over a reasonable period of time with lots of opportunity for reconciliation. So, that's first. Second, let's make sure that we understand our role as Christians, church members, and leaders in this process. Paul describes putting this man out of the fellowship, but he describes it so that his spirit might be saved. Jesus talks about treating them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So, let's ask ourselves, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Well, it seems obvious to me that our role as Christians, therefore, is to love this person back into the fellowship, the same way that we would love any other lost soul into the Christian community. I think that as responsible Christians, we would never let someone that we didn't know or trust be in our children's ministry, or get behind our pulpit, or lead us in worship. But at the same time, we don't tell those people they aren't welcome in church. Where else will they hear? We also don't refuse to associate with lost people in our personal lives. We just don't make them our closest confidants. We don't bring them our spiritual struggles or trust them with those things most precious to us. So just as we love and mentor a lost person toward relationship with Jesus, in the same way we can still love and mentor a wayward Christian back into fellowship. When a person is the subject of church discipline, we don't ban them from the property or shun them, but we do keep them out of positions of influence until such a time as we can trust them again. And that is a key point. Trust them again. The whole reason that we are engaging in church discipline, rather than simply banning someone, is because we care, we love, and we want that person to be restored to full fellowship. We believe in each other, even when we go astray. And what's more, we believe in a God who can take those failures and mold us into the image of his son to be salt and light to the world. The last thing that I would like to bring up in reference to this passage, and perhaps this is more from the Matthew passage than the 1 Corinthians, is that church discipline is part of discipleship. There are times when we all need coaching 
times when we need to be confronted and kept accountable to the promises we've made and the standard of Jesus that we want to live up to. In John 15 verses 1 to 2, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Please note that in this metaphor, whether you're a good branch or a bad one, there's a knife coming for you. You're going to get cut either way. Being a good branch means the knife comes to cut away the dead parts and to protect the healthy parts of you. And that's a good thing. We all hope to look back on our lives and see how we've become more mature, gotten better, become better people. That is the goal. Nobody wants to look back and see themselves still in the same place that they were 20 years ago. So when the knife of discipline comes from God, we need to have the humility to hear what is being said, the courage to walk through the process and become the people that God has called us to be, more like Jesus every day. Let's pray. God, this is a hard topic. Church discipline isn't something that comes easily or naturally to us. At least not the way that you would have us do it, God. Throwing people out and hurting people seems to come pretty naturally, and ignoring the problem seems to come pretty naturally, God. Help us to walk the path that you would have us do. Help us to be your people. Help us to mentor and encourage one another into greater acts of love, into greater service of you. Help us, God, to be the people that you would craft for yourself. You are a good God, and we love you. We want to serve you. And we pray that you would go with us this week as we go about your business. In your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.